This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language and mature themes. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 290. Greetings, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 31 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Brian Summers is trying to redeem himself in the eyes of the Psy Collective. Formerly special operatives for the military's elite PSYOPs division, Brian and his squad were tapped by the Hive's elders to steal a smuggled package from the Vampire Crime Syndicate. The mission went disastrously wrong. Two of Brian's teammates were killed, and the package was taken to Viscount Security Solutions, a syndicate front company, and one of the most heavily fortified private buildings in Metamore. Now, if Brian can't find out what was in that box, the Hive is going to break up the Summer's breeding cell and revoke Brian's privileges as a cell husband. The Viscount job is going to be one of the toughest missions Brian has ever attempted, but fortunately he has help. He is joined on the mission by his wife Fiona, whose egoist powers allow her to enhance her speed, strength, and senses at will, and Callie Linder, a teenage runner whose supernatural luck gives her the edge in any situation. They are also being assisted by the Hive elder Miriam Bakhtivar, who believes that the Hive is being too timid and indecisive in its approach to the vampire threat. Miriam will not join them on the mission herself, but she obtained crucial materials and equipment that made it possible. The most difficult part of breaking into Viscount is getting inside. When they close at the end of the business day, the whole facility goes into lockdown mode, and the doors can only be opened from the inside. The plan is for Brian to enter Viscount during the day as part of a tour group, accompanied by a team of accomplices recruited by Miriam. Brian will then use his powers of electrokinesis to erase himself from Viscount's security records, and hide until the office is locked down for the night. Then he will loop the security camera footage and let in Fiona and Callie through an emergency exit, and they will work together to break into Viscount's vault. Meanwhile, Brian's two other wives, Rebecca and Sasha, are dealing with a completely separate problem. Rebecca's ex-boyfriend, Daniel, recently took on the curse of Metamore, becoming an androgyne named Danny. While trying to understand this unexpected decision, they realize that Danny has fallen under the sway of a man named Jared Tamlin, who seems to have a very disturbing ability, the power to reshape people's souls, 
changing their values and priorities to align with his own. It appears that it was Jared's influence that led Danny to take her temporary, trial-sized version of the Androgyne curse and make it permanent. Jared's ability seems to operate completely subconsciously, but that doesn't change the fact that he's subsumed Danny's will in service to his own. If they don't find a way to help her, she'll never be truly free again. Danny rejected Rebecca's attempt to help her directly. She's happy with Jared, and even if he has done something to make her feel this way, she doesn't care. So Rebecca and Sasha went to Artax, the wizard who sold Danny the trial-sized curse in the first place. Artax is aware of Jared, and is deeply disturbed by the possible existence of a soul shaper. He's been doing his own research on soul lore to try to understand what happened to Danny. He realized that Danny's decision to take the Androgyne curse actually gives them a way to help her. Taking the curse doesn't just give a person a new body, it actually splits their soul in two. Artax's pseudo-curse can't do that, it just mimics the effect on a mental level. Right now, Danny's mind consists of Danny, the feminine aspect that Jared has fallen in love with, and Daniel, the masculine half, which Jared's influence has been suppressing. Once the curse takes hold of her, her soul will cleave along the mental fault line that Jared's power has created. Daniel will become a separate self inside Danny's body, and that will make it possible to reach him, untouched by Jared's influence. Artax gave Rebecca a ritual spell that will alter the balance of power between Daniel and Danny, making it possible for Daniel to return to consciousness and take control of their body. What happens next will be for Daniel to decide. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 31 Friday, June 21st Viscount Security Solutions, Main Office Brian swiped his hand over the electronic card reader and the door to the office opened obediently. He slipped inside and crouched behind the desk, leaving the lights off as he powered up the computer. Things were going well. He, Fiona, Sasha, and Miriam Bakhtivar, together with her team of PSYOP agents, had entered Viscount's offices two hours ago, posing as a tour group from a computer networking firm. According to their cover story, their company had recently been raided by industrial spies, and they were looking to increase security at their home office. They had been under constant supervision during the tour of the facility, but Brian had used the time to familiarize himself with the floor plan and identify likely access points for the second phase of the mission. Less than a minute ago, Fiona had waylaid their escort in the restroom during lunch, and Sasha had given the woman a false memory that Brian had left the group to deal with an emergency back at the home office. With the human element of Viscount security thus out of the way, Brian was able to slip away from the rest of the group and hide inside this office, whose occupant had taken the day off. The computer's operating system came online and asked Brian for his username and password. Brian put his finger into the data port and extended his consciousness into the system, 
intending to bypass the OS and give himself administrator-level access. The Spectre was there waiting for him. Brian had only milliseconds to react. He used five of them to raise a virtual barrier between his mind and the attacker, forcing the system to enter a verification protocol before taking further action. That bought him nearly a second of real time, which he used to hide himself inside a low-priority maintenance subroutine. The Spectre broke through the barrier moments later and clawed its way back into active memory, scanning through open programs in the effort to find the intruder. Brian steadied himself and tried to catch his virtual breath. The Spectre, more formally known as the Security Protocol for Electronic Countermeasures and Tactical Infiltration Resistance, was one of the nastiest defensive programs in existence. An elaborate set of heuristic algorithms, fused with an elemental spirit of air, the Spectre lived on a firmware module installed on the network's server. It couldn't be cracked, overwritten, reprogrammed, or subverted. It had its own independent power supply, multiple redundant access points into the network, and the ability to send an electric shock directly into the hardware of anyone attempting to crack the network. If you were unlucky enough to be physically wired into the system at the time, either through a spelljack or through a direct link like the one Brian was using, the shock would fry your nervous system as well. Spectres were illegal for private companies to use, and Brian had only seen three or four government systems that used them, one of them being the network at MID. He wasn't really surprised that the Vampire Syndicate had gotten their hands on one, but it did underscore exactly how serious they were about protecting this office and its secrets. He pulled himself out of the system and sat back against the wall. Reaching into a hidden pocket on the side of his pants, he pulled out three portable mini-drives, one black, the others red. He turned off the computer's power supply and turned it back on again, forcing it into a hard reboot, then inserted the mini-drives into three of the computer's data ports while it was still starting up. For good measure, he unplugged the network cable from the jack on the wall. The black drive contained a set of instructions that would bypass the computer's normal startup routine, ignoring the operating system on the computer's hard disk and running a simplified OS directly from the mini-drive itself. Brian wouldn't be able to access anything on Viscount's network, nor could he use any programs on this unit that required files or user privileges granted from server-side. But he would be able to access the computer's memory and hard disk, and the Spectre wouldn't be able to interfere. Normally, he used this drive to help resurrect a computer after a catastrophic system crash, so he appreciated the irony of using it for what he currently had in mind. With the emergency OS up and running, Brian accessed the two red mini-drives and installed their contents onto the computer's hard disk. Unlike the black drive, these were not rescue equipment. They were weapons. Each drive contained over 10,000 computer viruses, crafted by some of the most ingenious and diabolical computer crackers the world had ever seen. They all operated in different ways and triggered under different circumstances, but any one of them could cause serious damage if it escaped into the network and propagated itself on other users' machines. Brian issued instructions for each of them to start running the next time that the computer was turned on. With the trap set, he turned off the computer, unplugged the mini-drives, plugged in the network cable, and then started it up again. 
As the OS booted up, he put his finger in the data port and sent himself back into the machine. He arrived to find the system in a state of chaos worthy of Lord Klepnos himself. His malicious programs were popping into active memory all over the place, rampaging through the system registry and assaulting the network connections in an effort to escape into other computers in the office. The Spectre chased after them like a cat in a room full of frightened mice, overwhelmed by the sheer number of simultaneous intrusions. It would catch them all in time, but meanwhile, Brian slipped by unnoticed and quietly granted himself an administrator-level username and password. He allowed himself a smile and silently thanked the Hive for sending him to MID. Very few people knew about the Spectre's weakness, and most of those who did had been members of Brian's department. Brian accessed the security system and edited the tracking logs to show that he had left and turned in his badge. As far as Viscount was concerned, he no longer existed inside their offices. Satisfied, he turned off the machine and went to the shelves at the back of the room. The ceiling tiles were the cheap gypsum variety found in most modern offices, and he was able to push them up and slide them out of the way without difficulty. Hoisting himself up into the rafters was a little trickier, and for the thousandth time he cursed the five kilos of extra weight that he could never seem to work off. At last, he pulled himself up onto a steel support girder and slid the ceiling tile back into place. There might be a fine dusting of gypsum powder on the shelves and desk below, but it was unlikely that the security guards would notice any sign of his intrusion. He sent a tendril of thought out into the mind link. I'm in position, he said. Copy that, Sasha replied. We're finishing up with lunch right now. I'm guessing we'll be out of here in another hour. After that, I'm heading back to the nest to help Rebecca. Good. For what it's worth, I hope you two are able to help Daniel. Just be careful. You too, love. I'll be praying for you. Brian smiled. I'll take all of those we can get, he said. Leaning back against a support column, he closed his eyes and waited for nightfall. As she left the hospital that evening, Danny waved goodbye to her co-workers at the front desk. Have a good weekend, ladies. You too, Danny, the receptionist called back. Yeesh, look at you, you're glowing. You got a hot date or something? Danny grinned as a familiar thrill ran through her. Every night, she said. See you girls on Monday. As she headed out to the bus stop, she pulled out her phone and dialed Jared's number. He picked up on the second ring. Tamlin here. Is this the office of the luckiest man in the world? Danny asked. He chuckled. It is now. I'm going to be stuck here a little while longer finishing this report, but I have something special planned for tonight. Special, eh? She purred. Should I dig out my special dress for the occasion? Actually, no, Jared said. You're going to want jeans for this. Jeans and sturdy, comfortable shoes. Danny frowned quizzically. Is there some new definition of special I'm not familiar with? Trust me, he said, the smile evident in his voice. You're going to like this. She chuckled at that. All right, Mr. Mysterious, you have your fun. I'll just... She broke off in mid-sentence, as a strange tingling sensation ran through her. 
Her vision faded, and she stumbled, suddenly dizzy. She grabbed hold of the sign by the bus stop and managed to stop herself from falling. She felt something tugging at the back of her mind, and for an instant she got the crazy feeling that there was someone else inside her head with her. And then, as quickly as the sensation had come, it was gone. She was dimly aware that Jared was calling her name. Yeah, I'm here, she said, as her vision cleared up once more. What happened? Are you all right? I'm fine, she assured him. The doc said I might experience a few weird sensations as the curse finished taking hold. I think I just got the last of it. She laughed as a sudden, giddy joy filled her heart. Looks like it's official, Jared. Danny Sharabi is here for good. It's happened. Sasha looked up at Rebecca. She was dressed in her coveralls and thoroughly splattered with paint, but her eyes were clear and focused. You're sure? she asked. Rebecca nodded emphatically. I've been channeling Danny all afternoon. It was easy to find her once I knew what to look for. I know the soul splits happened because now I can feel her and Daniel. Come on and see for yourself. Sasha followed Rebecca back into her studio, where a series of images of Danny were drawing along the walls. The painting that stood on the easel was a dramatic image of one person splitting into two, male and female, with each of them reaching in opposite directions. Sasha saw their faces and immediately recognized Daniel and Danny. All right, she said. We're all set up for the spell, so let's do this. And hope we don't screw it up, she added silently. Sasha had never really liked magic. Oh, certainly she understood the need for it, but she looked at it the way many people looked at nuclear power. It was mysterious, finicky, and really, really dangerous if it got out of control. Sasha had spent her childhood in a small rural town dominated by the Ecclesia. They had used magic only sparingly, and with tremendous caution. Here in Metamore City, which depended on powerful magic just to remain standing, people seemed far too cavalier about using it, and ritual magic was the worst of all. The great thing about ritual magic was that anyone could do it. A few simple instructions, some reagents, and a written incantation provided by a wizard were all you needed for most spells. As far as Sasha was concerned, that was also the terrifying thing about ritual magic. Mystical, arcane energies beyond the ken of mortal man could be summoned forth to change the shape of reality by bored university students with some spending money and an hour of spare time. Sasha much preferred the psionic powers of the collective. The mages might call them spookies, but at least their power came from inside themselves. She frowned. Not that that's kept Jared Tamlin from causing a whole lot of trouble, she thought. Assuming that Becca is right, and we aren't all just being paranoid for nothing. Sasha had prepared the ritual spell in the dining area, after sliding the table out of the way to make room on the floor. A chalk circle about 18 decimeters wide established the outer limits of the casting area, and the three candles formed an equilateral triangle inside it. A smaller chalk circle inside the triangle held a photograph of Daniel and the locket he had given Rebecca. 
The scroll and the stoppered vial sat on the kitchen counter next to a book of matches. Rebecca looked over the setup carefully. Everything looks right to me, she said. I'm not getting any danger sense from it, so I think it's okay. Sasha picked up the scroll, then handed the vial and the matches to Rebecca. After you, she said. She helped Rebecca get down on her knees in the middle of the circle, then double-checked it to make sure that there were no breaks in the chalk line. Satisfied, she stepped in behind Rebecca and unrolled the scroll. Okay, got the matches ready? Go. Rebecca struck a match and lit the first candle, while Sasha began chanting the incantation. Artax had been thoughtful enough to write it phonetically, using a large and easy-to-read font. It came out sounding gentle and musical, and Sasha wondered if it was based on Elvish. Namorete inshallah filis. Rebecca reached over to their left and lit the second candle. Turiona invora montis. Reaching to the right, Rebecca lit the third candle. Mantuara sialva kimsho. As soon as the third candle was lit, a curtain of light rose up around the edges of the circle, creating a shimmering barrier between them and the room beyond. Rebecca let out a little squeak of surprise, but she kept her hands steady as she withdrew the stopper from the vial. Alialma Novala Simco. Rebecca upended the vial over the photograph and the locket, pouring out a fine, sparkling powder. It covered the contents of the smaller circle and immediately began to glow with a soft blue light. Daniel Sharabi, Rebecca said, speaking his name firmly and clearly. Daniel Sharabi, Daniel Sharabi. The glowing powder vanished into the photograph in the locket, which began to glow with blue light themselves. Sasha spoke the final word of the incantation. Kuivo! There was a bright flash of blue-white light, a rush of wind, and a sound like a thunderclap. When Sasha could see again, the ring of light around the circle had vanished, and the objects in front of Rebecca had stopped glowing. The candles had been extinguished as well so quickly and so completely that they were not even smoldering. Rebecca craned her neck to look up at her. Did it work? she asked, her voice hovering between fear and hope. Sasha grimaced. It did something, she said. Whether it did what we wanted, there's only one way to find out. And that's the end of chapter 31. Come back next time when Danny and Jared go on a special date and Brian's team tackles the vault at Viscount. Joseph Conrad said, Writing in English is like throwing mud at a wall. So put on your overalls and grab a trowel. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of June 19th through June 25th. I wrote 4,290 words this week, over the course of 10.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 419 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone eight days without breaking my chain. 
This week, my editing of the Honor Bound trilogy shifted into high gear. For the last couple of months, I've been working a lot on my day job from home, doing data review, and I've noticed a problem. By the time I'm done with work, I'm too mentally tired to focus on editing. This week, I decided to flip my schedule. I've been editing the manuscript first thing in the morning, and then switching over to the day job. That way, no matter what happens at work, I can relax, because I've done my writing for the day. This has worked really well, and it's allowed me to tackle some big, time-consuming parts of the editing process that I wouldn't be able to handle any other way. My hourly word count is small right now, because a lot of this work involves tweaking the existing text, rather than adding a lot of new words. But I'm getting through the work, and making the changes that need to be made. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.